0: Please turn with me to Romans chapter 7 and verse 14. We're going to be finishing up the second half of Romans 7 this morning. Uh, you recall that last semester we finished up Romans chapter 6 and we, we really ended on a high note in Romans chapter 6. Paul reminded us that we are dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. Because we have been identified with Jesus Christ in his death as a payment for our sins, We were also buried with him and raised up to new life in him, so we are identified also in his resurrection. We can live a new life, Paul says. We can live a life that he characterizes as newness of life, resurrection life, different than the life that we lived before as slaves of sin and death. But then Paul goes on to describe his interaction with the righteous standards of God, that is the law. And it wasn't an encouraging experience. He confronted the law, and when he saw the law, rather than being transformed by the law and wanting more righteousness, instead, he was enticed to more sin through the law, an experience that we can all uh, relate to. As I said last week, we see the sign that says wet paint, and what do we want to do? We want to touch the paint. I mean, it's just in us. We see a sign that says 55 miles an hour, and we say, well, what can I get away with? Can I get 56? Can I get 60? Can I get 61? There's just something that is enticed within us by the very righteous standards of God. St. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions. Apparently, according to many scholars, this is the, the first autobiography that was ever written. And in it, he relates this story about himself as a young man. He said, There was a pear tree near our vineyard, laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths, I like that phrase, set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs, though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of forbidden fruit. They were nice pears, but it was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of iniquity, and that I enjoyed to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law in order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have maimed a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden? With the dim likeness of powerlessness, the desire to steal was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. See what he's saying? So I didn't need the pears and I didn't really want the pears for the sake of the pears. I actually had better pears at home. I just wanted to steal them because I knew I shouldn't. Wow. Unfortunately, we can all relate to that experience. And Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 7, the law is not the problem. The problem is with us. Because of this principle or law of sin that dwells within us, Law becomes the tool of sin and actually awakens or entices increasing sin in us. How will we be set free from that? What's wrong with us? I want you to listen with me as Paul describes his own struggle, and I want you to listen for the um, frustration, the difficulty that he has even describing what's going on inside of him. Verse 14. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle or the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from the body of this death? Now before we get deeply into this passage, I want to address uh, a question. Uh, whose story is this? It may surprise you to know that for 2,000 years people have debated. Who's Paul talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And If he's talking about himself, is he talking about himself before he knew Christ or after coming to know Christ? Uh, I'm going to just tell you what I think and why I think it and We're going to go from there. I'm not going to debate the issue, but I'm going to tell you, I think Paul's talking about uh, himself, and I'll give you several reasons. Paul is talking about himself as a believer in Jesus Christ. First, he uses first person singular, and you say, wow, Brian, that's an amazing observation. Do you uh, see that yourself? Yeah, I did. I I was just reading it, and I saw that all by myself. Uh, I, Paul says, I, 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 but, uh, you know, there are a lot of scholars who say, well, that's just a rhetorical device, Paul's actually talking about the experience of Israel, Now, it is possible that this is a rhetorical device, but usually when those kinds of devices are used, you've got some clue in the context. There's nothing there. Paul, I believe, is talking about himself. Notice also that he shifts from past tense in verses 7 through 13 to the present tense. He talks about uh, everyone's experience by using himself as an illustration when he first encountered the law, and then the law provokes sin. But then in verse 14, he makes a dramatic shift, and he moves into the present tense, and he talks about himself, first person, present tense. Third, if you think about the overall flow of Romans, it makes sense that Paul is talking about himself as a believer. Chapters 1 through 3, or 320, is about condemnation. We, we, We all experience the fact that we are under the sentence of sin and death because all have sinned. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. And we won't move toward Christ and say, I need forgiveness. I need rescue until we first understand that all are sinners. Then Paul talks about justification by faith. Yes, we're all under the condemnation of sin. But Jesus Christ has paid the penalty. And the moment that you believe, God declares you righteous. He puts you in right relationship with him. And then in chapters six through eight, he talks about the process not just of being declared righteous, our status being changed, but being progressively made righteous or made more like Jesus Christ through the power of Christ's resurrection and the presence of God's spirit within us. And so the overall flow of Romans, it doesn't make sense that he'd go back to talking about his experience before he was a Christian. Then fourth, The descriptions that Paul uses of himself, in my opinion, apply best to a believer. He says, I sincerely want to do good. I agree with the law in the inner man. I joyfully concur that the law is good. All those descriptions, in my mind, really make sense best uh, if you're talking about a believer. And I would argue not just a a, a brand new believer or baby believer, but I would say any believer. Even a mature believer. Believer. I have yet to meet a mature believer who can't relate to Romans chapter 7. And that internal conflict of wanting to do good, resolving to do good, intending to do good, and then doing the very opposite, and feeling this tension constantly within himself or within herself. Think about the flow in Paul's own life. He discovers that he's under the condemnation of sin, even though he's a Jew and he possesses the law. And he realizes the only escape is through the pattern of Abraham to believe, specifically to believe in Jesus Christ as the one who has removed his debt. He believes and then he begins to be uh, informed that he has been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he understands that his role now is to present himself to God. But as he presents himself to God through the law, what does he experience? More frustration, even further enticement to sin, and so he's wrestling internally. Notice what he says again in verse fifteen: "For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate." Anybody relate to that? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand because I know you do. Uh, <laughs> In my opinion, that's the fundamental struggle of the Christian life. Why don't I do the things that I want to do? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? And you see how Paul just keeps circling around on this throughout the second half of the chapter? I really struggled with putting together a sermon on this without sounding like I was rambling. Because to me, Paul's just, he just can't even find the vocabulary to describe this struggle or this fundamental issue that I would. Put like this, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why am I battling? Why am I struggling? Students, you ever make a resolve that this relationship that you're in, it's not going to get physical again? Made an agreement, it won't happen, I'm not going to. I, I resolve with the other person, I resolve with God, and then, wow, here we are again. Parents, you ever make a resolve? You're not going to lose your temper with your kids. You're not going to yell. You're not going to scream. You're not going to discipline out of anger again. You're going to be respectful to your spouse. You're going to love your spouse. You're going to love one another. You're not going to give in to that habitual temptation. You're not going to take another drink. You're not going to use that drug again. You're not going to use that escape of looking at those images on the computer. You're not going to do it again. You're not going to. There I did it again. Ah. What's wrong with me? What's wrong? Paul describes it like this. He says, here's the problem. I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. And what we're going to wrestle through this morning is, uh, how can Paul say, on the one hand, I am dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ, and then on the other hand say, I am also of flesh sold into bondage to sin. So we're going to start with a little word study. What does Paul mean by flesh or of flesh? Well, uh, if you look throughout the Bible, the word flesh is a pretty flexible term. It can mean several things. Uh, It can refer to all people. Okay, All flesh will see the glory of God. That is every person. Uh, It can also refer to the skin, just the skin covering your body. It can refer to your entire body or your uh, whole being, the whole person sometimes. It's the way the word is used. And you'll notice that with each of these uh, uses of the word, they're they're pretty much uh, ethically neutral, right? There's not a positive or a negative connotation to these. But there is a connotation throughout the Bible of weakness. The flesh is inherently weak. Uh, Jesus he used this concept when he was speaking with his disciples. Remember, he went into the garden and he said, we are about to face extreme spiritual warfare because I'm about to go to the cross and I really, really need your help. Would you pray? Okay, I'm going to go over here and pray. You stay here and pray. And you've got one another to help each other stay on the alert and, and stay awake. So help each other. Please pray for me. And he walks away knowing that they're going to fail. And he says, oh, by the way, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, I know that you have great intentions. Your spirit is willing. But your flesh, your body is weak. It wants what it wants. And when it's tired, it says sleep. And I know you're going to bail out on me. And he goes back each time. And what does he find them doing? Having given in to the weakness of their flesh. Well, Paul takes this term flesh, which is primarily a, a physical term. It's referring to something physical. And he takes it and he makes it a theological term or a spiritual term. Taking the concept of the vulnerability of the flesh, the weakness of the body, and he talks about it as all of me, as a person, a human being, fallen. That is, I crave things that are destructive. And I'm committed to a life of independence from God. That's the connotation that Paul invents for this word flesh. I find myself craving things that are actually destructive to me, even when I know they are destructive and I am committed to independence. He says, I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Read with me again for verse 14. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. It's not the law's fault. The law is spiritual, that is, it is from heaven. It is from the realm of the spirit. God gave it. It is a reflection of the righteous characteristics of God. But on the other hand, I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. In other words, there are two realms. There is the realm of heaven and the spirit. There is the realm of the earth and the flesh. He says, I was born in that realm. I was born into that. I am a native of the realm of the flesh. And then he goes on to explain it further with the phrase, that is, I'm sold into bondage to sin. Sold into bondage to sin explains what he means by I am of the flesh. Now, little side note. It's going to be important when we get into Romans chapter 8 to understand when Paul says, I was in the flesh, that he's talking about my time before I knew God, before I was a Christian. To be of the flesh means I was born into this realm. Okay? And I can't escape that fact that right now this physical body and who I am was born into this realm. That is one who sold into bondage to sin. Now again, he uses the word uh, slavery or bondage in a variety of ways. He talks about uh, the legal aspect of slavery. Turn back to chapter 6 and verse 22. Paul says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. The, the main theme there flowing through Romans chapter 6 is that I have been uh, freed from legal slavery to sin and death. That is, my status has changed. I am no longer a slave to sin. I don't have to say yes to sin any longer because I have actually factually a new master and that is I am now a slave to of God. Okay. But second he talks also about experiential slavery. Verse sixteen Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And that is just a that's a maxim it's a it's a generally true statement, believer or non believer. When you practice certain things you are slaves of those things. Again, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, you become a slave of uh, your habits, your patterns, uh, the, the, the cravings that you have, uh, the addictions that you have. Um, Christian, non-Christian. Okay? That is experiential slavery. Uh, but then third, there is an inherited slavery. I think that's what he's talking about in verse 14. Uh, there are certain traits that we are born with, and we're slaves of those traits. I'm a, I'm a slave. Of brown eyes. I don't sound simple, but when I was little, I thought blue eyes would be really cool. Because nobody in my family had blue eyes, so I thought blue eyes would be really cool. It's interesting, my wife has blue eyes, her whole family does, and she always thought brown eyes would be cool. Right? You, know, you always want what you don't have. Well, I'm, I'm a slave of brown eyes. The only way I can get rid of my brown eyes is to actually remove it, my brown eyes and actually have an eye transplant. Right? Kill that eye and give me a new one. Uh, I am a slave of being one and an average jumper, okay? This was, this was troublesome for me when I was in high school because I really, I wanted to do, you know, gorilla slams in basketball. I really wanted to just shake the rim, and I, I got to the point where I could just, just get it over the rim, just stuff it, you know, and I had friends who were shorter than I was, and, and, they could just—they were all over the rim. It was amazing. And I would do squats and I did plyometrics and I—man—I worked out hard, and nothing changed. No, I just—I was a slave of average jumping ability, no matter how hard I tried. And then I remember, and some of you will be with me on this—you'll remember this—but a uh, Spud Webb won the slam dunk contest. You gotta be old enough to hang with me here. He's five foot six, and he won the NBA slam dunk contest. How can you imagine? It was, I mean, the crowd was going crazy, because I remember he did one. This is not, really not relevant to the sermon, but he he bounced the ball off the floor, off the backboard, grabbed it, and slammed it behind his head at five foot six. I I will never, could never, and you know, I'm, I'm moving further away from that capacity. I am a slave of certain characteristics, as are you. You are... You, You're you're sold into bondage in that you were born into a certain realm and the characteristics of that realm. And until you die completely and are removed from that realm and are reborn fully and fully associated with the other realm, you're always going to struggle with these things. That is, particularly, Paul's talking about flesh or a sin nature, that is committed to living independently from God, craves things that are destructive, and that physical flesh has that spiritual flesh woven into it. Because that's part of being born into this world and being heirs of Adam. Sold into bondage to sin. In other words, flesh is interwoven with flesh. And as we'll see in Romans chapter 8, the ultimate freedom from that then is that we die. And we get a new flesh or body that doesn't have flesh or independence woven into it, inextricably woven into it. So, I was justified because God redeemed me. He declared me right because Christ purchased me for him. I was then reconciled to God. Those things changed my status so that now I am, in terms of my status, right with God, reconciled to God, and a slave of God through Jesus Christ. Okay? All of those things are true, but those things did not remove my sin nature. Okay? And as Christians, we need to understand that. Those things did not remove the sin nature. Uh, you're all familiar with Tarzan, story of Tarzan, right? Raised in, the, raised in the jungle. Did you know that they filmed the original Tarzan movies in Ithaca, New York? Yeah, again, you know, this says it's like Spud Webb. It has nothing to do with Romans 7 per se, but I thought it was fascinating because I grew up in Ithaca, New York. They didn't film those first black and white Tarzans out in the jungle. There's a little area at the end of Cuga Lake that looks like a jungle, and that's where they filmed Tarzan. Isn't that amazing? So Tarzan, he's out in the jungle... And Jane meets him, and Jane takes him out of the jungle, and they, they discover that he is uh, Lord Greystoke. I mean, he's actually an heir. He's, he's a, a man from a high society family, and she introduces him to uh, all this high society, and he absolutely hates it. And he can't live there. He leaves, and he goes back into the jungle. The moral being, you can take the man out of the jungle, but you can't take the jungle out of the man, right? Okay, flesh. <laughs> that, that's flesh. That's flesh. So is it of any practical value is our question. Great. I've been justified. My status has changed, but but am I changed in any real way that will give me a a different practical relationship to temptation and sin? And what Paul says is, uh, absolutely. Because you're now in Christ, you don't have to say yes to sin any longer. You can listen to a new voice. But if you imagine for a moment that uh, yourself, your body, is a battlefield, there are two ruling forces that are competing for dominance in your life, and neither is willing to compromise. Neither will say, Let us call a truce. And for the Christian who says, Well, I'm tired of battling. The result is not then freedom. It is slavery. Instead, you become a prisoner of war. say, I don't want to fight against sin any longer. I don't want to have this battle any longer. I don't want there to be warfare in me any longer. So I'll just give in to sin. Then you become a prisoner of war. You do not become free. Because there is no compromise. There is no truce. The two warring factions are going at one another. So what does Paul mean? When he says, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin, he, said, he means I was born into this earthly, fleshly system. As a result, I will live in conflict until I become fully a part of the new heavenly order. Okay, until I become fully a part of that new heavenly order. I can say no to sin now because I am in Christ, but I am not fully a part of that heavenly order. That is what I am hoping for, and that is what Paul develops in Romans chapter 8, that process through which gradually I begin to live and think more like the heavenly order and how I can have hope to ultimately become a part of that heavenly order when God remakes all things and sets all things right. But right now I am at war. As he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. Literally, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You will be in battle. Reconcile yourself to that. For as long as you are in this realm, it will be a battle. Listen to Paul's description, chapter 7, again, verse 21. I find then the principle, literally the law, I find this principle or governing law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Uh, that's warfare that Paul describes. So before we tackle that, I want to do a little bit of of, of biblical anthropology for you. Who who are we? What what makes us humans, men and women? Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 is the first description. It says, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Let me break this down for you. He begins with dust of the ground. And the word for ground there is the word Adam. Adam's name means earth. Why? Because he's from the earth. He's from this system. This is what he's made from. God takes the material elements and he forms Adam or man. Then he breathes into him the breath of life. That is uh, the word Nishma. God breathes into him. And after breathing into him, he becomes a nefesh or a soul. He becomes a living being. Now, animals are also called nefesh or souls. They're living beings. But the way that they're formed is not by God breathing into them the breath of life. Only mankind is formed by God breathing into him the breath of life. So that mankind shares the breath of life from God. It's part of what makes man man and independent from the animals and of a higher order and of more value than the animals. Mankind is a spiritual being who can relate to God who is pure spirit. And so what we see here is there's an outer man, the body from the dust of the ground and the inner man that's formed by the breath of life coming into the man and those together make a person or a soul. Okay. So that is what man is. Inner man and outer man united together. I'm going to diagram it for you, which is kind of risky. Don't read too much into this. There is a material aspect of man, it's necessary. We are not pure spirit beings, we have body. Sometimes Paul likes to use that word body. Sometimes he and other writers speak of flesh and bones. One of Paul's other favorite terms is uh, members. When he talks about the members of my body, he's talking about the constituent parts. You know, my hands, my feet, my legs, uh, my, my, my brain, my eyes, my nose. Those are the members of my body. To be human is to have a body. It's an unnatural state for a human to be disembodied. We're inner man and outer man second uh, aspect of our nature is the immaterial person, which is invisible, but it's intertwined with the physical being. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in just a moment. As you're looking at these terms on the right, remember, they're not technical. They're not always used exactly the same way throughout the Bible. Uh, if you go to your doctor, your doctor can say, you know, right there is your heart, okay? And I can show you and point to your spleen or your kidney. Well, it, it's, not, it's not so with these spiritual concepts. Uh, Paul in particular spends a lot of time developing a, a, a biblical anthropology of the inner man. And what he's doing is he's describing how we function. He's not trying to create a technical vocabulary. But if you look throughout the Bible. Uh, one of the primary words that is used is spirit. Spirit is that, that uh, animating force. It's what brings to life. You say of some people, they have a lot of spirit, or that person became dispirited. God breathes into us the breath of life. He breathes in in his spirit. And we are spiritual beings. And before the fall, man's spirit and God's spirit were united in one. We were alive in that sense. When Adam fell and Adam sinned, he didn't lose his spirit. It was not as if he had no spirit any longer. His spirit became dead in that it became separated from God, operating independently from God. Regeneration is the spirit of man becoming reunited with the spirit of God. Okay, that's spirit. Uh, heart is like the governing center of the entire person. Uh, we, we think of heart in terms of, of emotion. That's how we use the word. That's not the primary use biblically. It's the governing center. It's where... Uh, thinking and reasoning and choosing and willing and directing happens. Okay, it's, it's the directional center of the inner man. Conscience is that capacity to say that's good and that's evil. And conscience can be weak or strong. Mind is where uh, reasoning or intentions occur. And in this passage in Romans 7, Paul is focusing his attention on this concept of mind where I, where I reason through and, and listen to different voices and choose and say that's good and that's what I want to do or what I intend to do but notice all of these are are wed together in other words I am I'm one person these things together I am one and what I discover in so much biblical literature about the spiritual life is they just focus on the right hand side and ignore the physical side but the right-hand side, the, the invisible, immaterial man, doesn't exist and operate apart from the physical. Okay? They happen together. Okay? Through the members of my body, my five senses, I interact with the world. I interact with you. I interact with God in worship. I interact with my physical environment. It's through these members of my body that I become tempted. Okay? When I think, which is an immaterial, a spiritual action... It happens through the organ of my brain, right? The, the two are tightly knit together. They're, they're really inseparable. That's why I say immaterial is invisible, but it's intertwined. Uh, I had a friend several years ago who had some head trauma. And after his, the head trauma, uh, he struggled with, with anger and depression because of a knock on his head, right? When I'm overly tired, I am vulnerable to temptation, and I have a more difficult time making decisions. I read a study a few years ago about some folks who had head trauma to the emotional center of their brain, and the result was they couldn't make choices because emotion and will are tied together psychologically, but they're also centered somewhere within the physical organ of the brain. All these things are tied together. Have you wrestled with depression? Perhaps you're really tired. Perhaps you're physically exhausted. Perhaps you need a change uh, in your nutrition or sleep patterns or exercise. Or maybe there is truth that needs to come into your mind and dominate your thinking because you're believing lies. Or maybe the, the, the hormonal balance within your brain is out of whack. Or maybe it's a combination of all of these things. My point is the human being is extremely complex. And when we address spiritual life, we have to look at the entire person. Okay? Because we are body and spirit, and we'll talk about this more when we hit chapter eight. Paul's point here is that all of this has been damaged by sin. The fall damaged all of this. The physical being wears all; it wears out, it decays. The heart can be directed against God. The conscience can be seared and no longer discern good and evil. The mind can listen to lies and then make choices against God or for God, all of these things have been damaged, affected by the fall. They don't work perfectly any longer. And ultimately, when these two are separated, as we said a couple weeks ago, that's what we call physical death, right? The separation of the inner man and the outer man. Not non-existence, but death. And that is an unnatural state for a person. That's why our great hope is that someday we will get a resurrection body that is no longer subject to temptation, sin, or physical death? Now, go back with me to Romans chapter 7 and verse 15. Let's walk through these verses. Paul says, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Paul is saying, reiterating the point he made in the first part of the chapter, because I hate sin and I feel guilt when I experience sin, that is a a validation of the righteous principles of the law. The law is good. It's from God. Verse 17, so now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing or the wishing or the wanting or the intending is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing that I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the law or the principle that evil is present in me, In me, the one who wants to do good. Now, Paul is not here shirking his responsibility for sin. He is just wrestling to find the right terminology to describe what's actually occurring within him. He's not saying, I'm not responsible. He's trying to explain what's happening within him. So you will frequently see in Christian literature a discussion of the real you. Okay? And what goes along with that is the real you doesn't really want to sin. The real you only wants what's righteous. And when you see that phrase, I want you to either tear out the page or scratch it out or write wrong in the margin or burn the book. Okay, because that is bad theology. What's the real you? This thing sitting right here in front of me, that's the real you who wants to do good and kind of also wants to do evil at times, who intends to do good, but doesn't follow through. Okay, that's all the real you. That's all the real you. Fortunately, that's not all there is to you. Okay, but that is who we are right now as earthly fleshly beings. Paul goes on, verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Okay, here are the battle lines. Paul says there is an inner man And the governing principle of that inner man can be my mind. That is, my capacity to listen and reason. My capacity to listen to the voice of the Spirit and reason. This is Paul describing himself as a man who wants to walk with God. And so he is allowing God to inform his mind. He is listening to God. And he says, now I have become convinced that righteousness is good and right. I want it. I joyfully now concur with the law of God in the inner man. As a result, this is where I have become convinced to obey God. I'm convinced I want to. It is my intention. But being convinced and having the intention alone is not enough. Because I am at war. There's also another force operating within me. Within the members of my body, there is a governing principle of sin. Verse 23. But I see a different law... In the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is wrapped up in my members. My members are my capacity to interact with the world. That's my five senses. Therefore, that's where I experience temptation. That's where temptation enters into my thinking, my feeling, my body, my wanting. And my body most naturally always says yes to sin. And my flesh most naturally says yes to the temptation and yes to sin. Because that is the bent of my flesh because I've been sold into bondage to sin. I'm I'm of this earth. So notice verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. And Paul has said. When I try to be set free. From the body of this death. By looking just to the law. Law becomes a tool of my flesh. And I'm tempted to do. Even more. Sin. When I rely on myself. I fail. That's what he's describing there. Myself. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. I rely on myself. I will also fail. It's interesting in Romans 7. He uses. He uses. Uh, specifically the pronoun I six times. In Greek, uh, you don't need to put the pronoun there. The pronoun can just be a part of the verb itself. But when you pull it out, ego, it's emphasizing it. I, I myself. Six times he says, I myself in chapter seven. Chapter eight, I myself disappears. Okay? I rely on the law. I rely on myself. I experience failure. Verse 25, it says, Thanks be to God, then, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Notice he doesn't say, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The battle's over. I don't have to fight any longer. He doesn't say that, does he? No, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, let me summarize. On the one hand, I myself... With my mind, I'm serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I am in warfare, but he is looking forward to victory through what Christ has accomplished specifically by giving us the indwelling spirit. And so the law or the governing principle of the spirit can now inform my mind and this uh, mortal body or this body of death that's been sold into bondage to, to sin that ultimately must be destroyed so I can get a new body, right now God can use this. He can overcome all of that failure through the power of his spirit. Okay? And I think this, this is all, if it's still a bit cloudy, I think it's going to make more and more sense as we walk through the first half of Romans chapter 8. But let me leave you with, with two thoughts. Okay? First is this. The normal Christian life is a life of struggle. If you're struggling, Satan's going to tell you, maybe A, you're not a Christian at all. Or B, you're completely immature. No, struggle is the normal Christian life. Uh, consistently giving in to sin is a sign of, of immaturity. But wrestling and struggling and battling... And we all fail periodically. That's not a sign of immaturity. Struggle is the nature of our current existence. Okay? That, that's, that's in this current life. We will battle. And for so many brand new believers. They, they, they get this concept. That you know, once I trust in Christ. All battles will be over. No man that is when it really cranks up. And Satan comes after you to make your life uh, miserable and of no value to God whatsoever. Struggle is the nature of what we're going through right now. So, the application for you for this week is I want you to listen to the voice of God's spirit and ask him to show you where are you most vulnerable. Where is your flesh most vulnerable to Satan's temptation? Say, God make it clear to me through your spirit. Second, if we try to fight alone, we will lose. Just, it's just a fact. We will. We desperately need God. We desperately need one another. Maturity is not becoming more independent or needing God less or needing others less. It is having the wisdom and the humility to realize how deeply we need God and we need one another. And so I want to encourage you this week. You may be battling with particular sin And feel extremely discouraged. Or you may be about to be attacked. Put up your guard by getting on your knees this week and say, God, I need you. And cry out to God in humility. God, I need you. Show me how to walk with you more deeply. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people of deep humility. I pray that we would understand how desperately we are dependent upon your spirit. I pray that we would understand how completely vulnerable we are to temptation. Even as we grow in maturity, we are always vulnerable. I pray that we would understand that we have a traitor within that's constantly trying to betray us. I pray, Father, we would understand ourselves and we would understand you. Father, make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, so for next week, read Romans 8. We'll start to fill in more of the gaps. We'll see you next week.